I hope that you're doing well. I know it's not been easy and that you are concerned with the health of family members and friends, as well as this pandemic's economic impact. I'm, I'm right there with you. Like you, I have people in my life who are vulnerable because of their age or because they are immunocompromised. Some of these people are first responders, and when I hear their stories, it brings what we're facing one step closer to home. Yet I don't allow powerlessness to overwhelm me. I remind myself that by staying in place, not buying more than I need, reaching out and connecting to others, and even continuing to produce this podcast allows me to play a small role in combating this pandemic's impact on all of us. It may not feel as significant as what doctors, nurses, EMTs, and even the clerks at my local market are doing, but I believe that it's still important. Because I'm one of countless people who together are not succumbing to fear and despair, anger and resentment. I'm a member of a worldwide community of people who believe that together we can help each other to get through this. When I heard Hugh Brownstone on his YouTube channel, Three Blind Men and an Elephant, call his listeners to do just that while providing valuable context for what we were facing. I knew that it was finally time to sit down and talk. And while the conversation did touch on the crisis, we also managed to find time to connect on our shared passion for photography, family, and the endless joy of discovery. I hope that this hour will provide you a nice respite from the storm. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. I was... um always fearful of people from a young kid part partly because it was about feeling less than you know that sort of underlying insecurity based on what uh i think it basically started in in like first grade because i remember this vividly like in in kindergarten i didn't feel this but in first grade i was sort of introduced to the hierarchy of some kids being better than others and yeah. uh, largely being determined by uh, your efficiency and your proficiency in kickball. So I quickly learned that I had no athletic ability, no coordination. And almost immediately, that was sort of my determining my, my place on the totem pole. And the, whatever talents or skills that I had suddenly didn't mean much of anything. There was a guy named Philip. First grade. I remember. You remember? Of course. It's burned into my psyche. Philip. He was this, you know, Latin kid, maybe a little bit Filipino, dark hair, beautiful, beautiful young boy. He could kick the ball way over the fence. I mean, and I can still hear the sound of that, that ball, that metallic sound of the kick. With that little hint of an echo, right? The, Inside exactly. the ball. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. That being sent over the fence countless times. And then me trying to do it and having all this performance anxiety and, of course, just messing up. And then every lunchtime when the lineup would get and they would have the two people picking people, you know, and seeing the, the teams line up and then the, the look of absolutely disgust that I was the one left over and that I would have to be on their team. 
Oh, so man. it was just that that sort of sense of God, there's something wrong with me. That and a couple of other things just tended to lead me to being isolating. And then I had a bad stutter too when I was a as a kid. So it was just like trying to talk and just have a conversation. And when you're nervous, it just makes the stuttering all the worse. Of course. So it just I was just susceptible to being socially awkward and then just compound all those things. And it just made me uh, the perfect candidate for the local library. The, the upside of down circumstances. Libraries are <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, I am I, such a geek. I remember the day that my library card came in the mail. And I still remember what it looked like. This very sort of thin paper. It was perforated. So you had to you had the whole sheet and you perforated it. And it was a, almost a, a slightly stronger than powder blue saying Los Angeles Public Library with my name on it. And it was the very first piece of identification with my name on it. And I felt so grown up when I saw that thing. And I felt did like you I still could have it. No, I wish I did. Did oh, it have rounded corners? God, I can't remember whether it had rounded corners. I just remember the way it looked. If I was so lucky, and you know, I actually went on online to see if I could find it, mm -hmm. but I have not been able to find any images of those cards from the seventies. Uh, though I know they're they're out there. This is already beautiful, man. I love this. <laughs> yeah, I went by. I actually went by last week to go to the location where that library was. And I knew that um, the public library system had sold it, but I wanted to see if the building was still there. And thankfully, it's still there. And I think it's a, a legal services office's office for the community. But that was the place where I, I, when I was a kid, I went through the racks, imagining where a book that I would write would sit on the shelf. Dewey Decimal System, baby. Oh, yeah. My mother would love you because <laughs> next to... P.S. number one, my elementary school, my public school number one, okay. was the local library. And my mother went back to school as an adult, got her master's in library science, and eventually uh, became the chairman of the board of the local library. So everything that you're talking about, about libraries and how you feel, I just, I just so relate. I mean, if I turn the camera around and you saw... Well, I think most YouTubers just off frame, it's a holy mess, but mm -hmm. I have hundreds of books, hundreds of books. Yeah. Yeah. Although yeah. I, I feel, I feel the burden of sucking a kickball, man. I, and how's your mom doing? I know she's in the middle of New York. She is. She's sheltering in place. She's okay. She's feisty. She's still complaining about the leaf blowers before there are any leaves. <laughs> and uh, she's complaining about her co-op board. Rightly so. They're terrible people. It's interesting. We can't visit her because we don't want to run the risk of infecting her with coronavirus. We don't have enough tests out there to know if we're carrying or not. And, and she, even though she has an iMac and it should be fast enough and we spend time with the uh, tech support guys, we couldn't get FaceTime to work. And finally, after an hour and a half, we just gave up and she was fine with it. You know, she's old school. She's so old school. The telephones are modern tech and she's happy just to talk on the phone. It's beautiful. I've been doing so much of that, picking up the phone, calling people, especially people I haven't talked to in a while. And they know what you look like already. So it's good. Just a little grayer and older. That's all. Yeah.
but I like the look of your office. The listeners can't see it, but it looks like the interior of an old subway car. I love it. Well, in fact, what you're looking at behind me is a four foot by eight foot print taken by Claudia. Oh, and, really? yes. And it, we, we took this photo in the village because we just love the found environment, the textures of New York City just knock our socks off. But this is where I, this is the bat cave. This is where I do all of my videos when I'm doing talking head stuff. Yeah. But one of the things that I've done is I've strategically placed my head so that you can't see why Claudia took the photograph, but I'll remove it my head for right now. <laughs> A picture of you in the door frame. That's great. Yeah, but it's really all about street art and wall art and the cacophony of messages and artistic styles the, the organic creation of something extraordinary and you find it all over new york you know you've been yeah it's one of my one of my favorite my favorite cities my heart goes out to a lot of people out there i got family out there uh, some of whom are first responders right now so it's just like you know my thoughts are are out with them right now i can only imagine you know, what they're faced with over there. I understand exactly. My my nephew is a nurse in the emergency department for a major New York City medical center. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one can argue about how serious this is based on either knowledge or emotion. But he posted an image on Facebook where his nose is bruised and raw because they ran short of masks and he was using an N95 mask. And he's on the front lines there too, right? Yeah. And uh, we learned at one o'clock this morning that he's actually getting a, a paper mask, positive air pressure, respiratory, whatever it is. This is the thing that you see in contagion. I mean, it's the right. full yeah. mask and powered fan on the backpack running through multiple filters all over the country, not everywhere in the country, but certainly New York is now the epicenter of the coronavirus uh, pandemic here in the States. Uh, they're, running they're running short. I mean, I saw some of those, uh, just the type of photo you described on Twitter today. Yeah. And uh, if that doesn't start making it real for what people in, in emergency rooms all over the country are facing right now, they, I don't know what will, you know. Right. But we're all hunkered down here just trying to do our part. And that's one of the things I was uh, writing down in my, uh, in my I, I do meditation in the morning, do some reading and do some writing. And I read the paper each morning just to get catch up. Find out what's not going to raise on. your blood pressure. No, no. I mean, I can't watch. I can't watch television news yeah, any, any degree because I'll just, I'll just, just go buggy. But I just want to see what's going on. And it was, I, I kind of knew it was going to get worse before it got better. But from what I'm reading, it's going to get much worse than I had thought. You know, it's interesting. Math is math, yeah. and historical precedent is historical precedent. Out of frustration, I tweeted at the Democrats and the Republicans. I, I'm not partisan that way and said, do your freaking homework. And I linked to a YouTube video by a true expert in epidemiology and infectious diseases who back in 2018 identified precisely what we were not prepared for. Mm -hmm. And that is what we're in right now. Yeah. And so I was just, you know, just focus. I'll just focus on what I can do. Doing my part here in terms of keeping not only my own family safe and checking in on them, but also reaching out to people, just checking in with them, especially those people who are, are have already been isolated for 
you know, other reasons beyond the case of this virus and then using the platform that I have, you know, like you have yeah. to be some sort of positive force in the midst of all this, not so much to bury my hand in the sand or to encourage other people to do so, but it's easy to lose your, your S H O. I know you're yeah. talking about a four letter <laughs> word. Sounds like excrement. <laughs> yeah. It's easy, well, I, I, especially I, over, you know, over, uh, more than a couple of weeks of having to be hunkered down like this. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Perspective is, is just a beautiful thing. If the worst that most of us have to do is hunker down, please, that's yes. nothing. Mm-hmm. That's nothing, nothing. It's, it's really extraordinary. And then when you think about what we've already experienced and the reference point for this is the 1918, 1919, Spanish flu, I'm using air quotes for mm-hmm. those of us who can't see us, pandemic. And of course, that killed 50 million people at a point in time when the world population was less than 2 billion, as opposed to the 8 billion that it is now. By the way, it has an interesting uh, story behind that name. It didn't occur in Spain. It started in the United States. But back then, if you don't know the story or, or your listeners don't know the story, the United States basically was able to censor the media and they didn't want the media to propagate the fact that so many people were dying. But Spain did not enter World War I and was not so encumbered. And so it was Spanish outlets that reported on it first. Oh, God. Well, I want to turn to some more positive stuff. Uh, let's and, uh, do it. And mostly I wanted to talk about you a little bit. Uh, I've been watching your YouTube channel for quite a while, and I've always enjoyed it. And uh, I've always been impressed by your on-camera presence. Oh, thanks, man. I think I sent you a message about a year ago. Did you? Yeah, yeah, because I would watch you just do your thing. It didn't suffer from those constant cuts that all these other YouTubers use when they they screw up. And that was just seemingly one continuous take, and I was just awed by that skill because... When I do my intros for my show, I'm not on camera. I'm just speaking into a microphone. And uh, if you could hear my my foul language as I screw up multiple times while I'm trying to record this three-minute intro. <laughs> I feel you. I People feel you. We would be very surprised. So when I see you do that, do that on camera, so almost so seamlessly, it's something I have mad respect for. But well, thanks, a- along man. with you, along with your, you know, your your great presence on camera, I just I have always enjoyed the joy and the generosity by which you share your love and your joy of, of photography. So you've been on my radar for a while as someone I wanted to talk to, and just it just seems like, you know, considering the times we're in right now, is all the more appropriate to have someone whose, whose work not only I like and admire, but whose presence I greatly appreciate. Well, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, I knew who you were the, the moment it came across the email. I'm looking at you now, and so I'm seeing the voice, and I'm seeing your movement. And right about now, I'm thinking, brother from another mother. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. You've got, you've got the same kind of, of calm and solidity that just happens to be the way we're built, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thanks. But I, yeah, I love photography. What can I tell you? But you studied psychology in college. So how did you come to, to study that as opposed to something more creative and 
artistic? Well, it's, it's not that I didn't spend an enormous amount of time before I got to college with photography. I mean, like so many people, we all have our origin stories. And I, I talk about that in our workshops because I, I think we mine our origin stories to inform our artistic voice. You know, taking over my sister's bathroom to make a dark room or my first job ever was in a camera store or running the photography program at a summer camp when I was 16. But it was always for me about the process. It was my joy in the process. And the idea of turning that into a livelihood back then really bothered me. Hmm. It really bothered me because I didn't want anyone telling me who I had to photograph or how I had to photograph or, or anything like that at all. I just, I did it just because I loved it. And because I, felt that being labeled one thing was too constraining. We know whether it's Alfred Eisenstadt or Daniel Boorstin, who you might recognize as once the librarian of Congress, there are so many people who I have such respect for, who in one way or another said, professionals, yeah, they're important. And there are certain things that professionals can do. They're, they're excellent at developing economies of motion and how to get things done. But it's the amateur spirit that really informs beauty and art and innovation. Andre Cortez said the same thing. Cartier-Bresson, same thing. So there were other fish to fry and there were other things that I wanted to understand. And psychology which I'm gathering now from your story, you can probably relate to, is a really good way of understanding yourself. So that's why I, I went there. But after a couple of years, I realized there's a very fine line between the people on the couch and the people behind the couch. And <laughs> just average people, they're difficult enough to deal with. I'm difficult enough to deal with. And I got very pragmatic. So, of course, that's why I went off to get an MBA, join Slytherin House back in the day. <laughs> And what was that life like? You're on Wall Street. You're doing all that whole that whole business lifestyle, and you got to be really good at it. Yeah. By the time I left Wall Street, I was a senior vice president at a global Fortune 500 money center bank. I thought I was a master of the universe. I was making a lot of money, and then I proceeded to make a lot more money in pharmaceutical market research. You understand the Slytherin reference now. Mm -hmm. You understood it before. It allowed me to, to do certain things, to allow my, my wife and children to do things that we otherwise could not do. And I was just focused on living up to my father's ambition for me, though I think I misunderstood it because he would say to me every now and again, all I can ask is that you try your best. That's a little bit of a curse because mm -hmm. you never really know what your best is until you finally hit the wall. But he wanted me to be a senator or a Supreme Court justice and, or a PhD at the very least. And that wasn't my thing. He was not impressed with an MBA, but that's okay. That's okay. But one of the things that it helped me realize in, in retrospect is that when you're climbing the corporate ladder, it's not necessarily that you're a venal or evil person. You're just focused. And when yeah. you're focused like that, because the validation comes back, you're being given more and more responsibility. You're taking that responsibility. You're executing against that responsibility and you're, you're getting promoted and you're seeing life the way so few people can. 
you're not thinking about everybody else. You're just not thinking about everybody else. Yeah. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. You know, it's, it's interesting to see what choices we make, especially early on, some of which is, is we're tempted to do just because we have so much joy and love for it. And then that other practical aspect of the pressures, not only of family, but society overall that says, well, that's nice, but be realistic. Give it up. Oh, right. So, be realistic. Mm-hmm. Be realistic, which is simply, I think, the person saying that's sense of that person's limitations. Right. I mean, the, the thing that got me hooked, and it was instantaneous, instantaneous, was when I held up to the light a Kodachrome slide of a piece of driftwood at water's edge that my mother had taken with the secondhand camera she'd bought from our childhood family photographer. And at that particular moment, I wasn't thinking about cameras or gear or anything else. I was just stunned by the light shining through the the brilliance of the colors, the sense that I was there at water's edge with this beautiful piece of driftwood. That was it. Mm -hmm. I was six. That was it. And then later on, it was, okay, what camera was I taking with? My mother's Leica 3A. Where is that? I mean, your, your listeners won't see this, but here it is. This is V1. That is well, V1. Oh, wow. Great. I bought this. I bought this later, much later. But this is V1, Leica 3A. And when I visited Germany and went to Wetzlar, they actually had a recording of the serial number of this particular camera and that it was delivered to a store in Berlin in December 1938, one month after Kristallnacht. Wow. So when I say that I see history through the lens of photography, Ibarian X, I'm showing you exactly how and why that started. Because the woman who sold this camera to my mother secondhand, our childhood family photographer, was a Bauhaus-trained German-Jewish refugee named Hilda Hubbock. A couple of her images are at the Getty Museum out in uh, California. And she came to the United States to escape religious persecution. And you took apart one of your mother's cameras. Is that right? Oh, yeah. This one. So so the story, well, this is something that preceded cameras. I mean, the first time I took something apart was a little red radio flyer wagon. Mm-hmm. I did that oh, yeah. in the apartment of Brooklyn, where, where I was born and raised until the age of six. But it was this, this specific camera. What happened was the Vulcanite was cracked. And it bothered me that it was cracked. So I peeled it off. I peeled all of it off. And then I said, I could spray paint it. So I spray painted the body. And then I took apart the top. I took off the housings. I spray painted them black. And then... I really thought that the engraving would look better with white lettering. So I took a piece of chalk after the paint dried and just rubbed it over this until it turned white. And my mother didn't get mad at me. I I don't understand how she couldn't get mad at me, but she didn't get mad at me. Instead, she gave it to a friend who restored it as best uh, he could, which was not very good. And I still have on my to-do list a complete restoration with a company out in Wisconsin. I just, I'm afraid to put it into the mail. I I don't want to lose this. And it's a one in a million shot. But my intent is to drive there, drive to Wisconsin from suburban Philadelphia, 
so that I can hand this over and have it restored. This, uh, yeah. I have my dad's first camera, which he likely bought somewhere around my, my birth. It's a Kodak Reflex 3, German-made camera with a leaf shutter. You control the shutter speed and the aperture using the controls on the lens itself. It Beautiful. had a photo, uh, photo, uh, photo, I forget what it's called, light meter, which is on the external part. A photo part. cell. Photo a cell. selenium cell, probably. Right. Selenium cell. Yeah. Or CDS. And it, and it has the film advanced lever on the bottom of the camera. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, the, and the trigger uh, shutter is not on top of the camera. It's on the face of the camera to the right of the lens. It's in another room. Otherwise, I'd, I'd show it to you. Well, you know what? You will have to show it to me at some point. Not now, but at some point. So uh, I know at some point your life changed and you left all of that. Was it related to uh, that health crisis you had? Yeah. So you heard me talk about running full tilt until you hit the wall. Mm -hmm. So it was... In 1998, my family and I moved, my wife and daughters moved to England on corporate relocation. And for three years, it was an incredible thing. I mean, a colleague of mine said back in the day, we live better than royalty did. And I said, stop. Mm. Except in hindsight, he was absolutely right. You know, <laughs> what we could do in 2000, 1998, 1999, 2000, are so far beyond what the Queen of England or the King of England could have done a century earlier. It was just astounding. But the combination of professional pressures, I was managing very large projects, critical projects for the world's largest pharmaceutical market research firm. My marriage was falling apart. My father's health was failing. And we made the decision to come home. And a couple of months later, I was in the house, retired, and my wife screamed from upstairs, turn on the TV, and I saw smoke coming out of a building, and I'm looking at this, and then I saw a plane fly into another building. So that, of course, was 9-11. I had my father come and live with us. That's why I came home. Eventually, my marriage failed. My father died, and around the same time... I was back in London for a business meeting. I ran up a flight of tube steps. I got to the top, felt like crap. I'll spare you the details. And it didn't clear for 45 minutes. So when I came back to New York, I said, I'm just going to check in with the cardiologist. And I remember saying to him, you know, I'm probably just being a hypochondriac. He says, well, you're here. Let's take a listen. And I was on an operating table less than three weeks later. Wow. Open heart surgery. Yeah. My marriage didn't survive that. But you know what? There is a saying, strongest in the broken places, mm. right? Yeah. That really changed a lot of things for me. <laughs> it certainly changed what I thought was important. I call that Hue 2.0, the beginning of Hue 2.0. That is a lot of stuff to be happening within a short period of time. Yeah, I think oh so. And it's just one of them can be, is bad enough, yeah. right? Loss of a marriage, you know, 9 11. Yeah parent dying a heart attack it's just like you know that old saying you know like, <laughs> it's like, it's like one of those comedians knocking on your head going hello in there hello in there <laughs> <laughs> let me try the to get through to you that you needed more than the usual to get you on the right path again 
Well, you know, that's the downside of being able to focus intensely for extended periods of time. Yeah. And of course, in the end, it was my children who bore the brunt of, of so much of that. But at least when we got back and, and after that, you know, I took my kids to school every day. I was there for them every day when they came home. Not that they necessarily enjoyed that, yeah. but uh, yeah. Yeah. So how did, how did you sort of get to the path of thinking, you know, you wanted to change your life in a variety of different ways, but including professionally, what, how did it manifest, it manifest itself that you wanted to, you know, not just make a living doing what you're doing now in terms of photography and, and multimedia, but just making the choice to follow a, something that you loved, a passion. Oh, it was complete serendipity. When we came back to the States, I made a couple of investments, one in a startup, and that didn't pay off. And most startups don't. That's fine. I made an investment in another, in another startup, which was my wife's, which is not Claudia, by the way. I, Claudia and I each went through a divorce, which is a great, humbling experience, tends to make you a better partner second time around. But I invested in my wife's ballet studio, and that kept me going for a while. And that's when I started to reconnect with my photography, because she was actually trained uh, under George Balanchine at New York City Ballet. And she opened this uh, ballet studio, and we decided that we needed life-size images of dancers captured in mid-flight. Well, I decided that. And uh, <laughs> Lois Greenfield was an inspiration. And at that particular moment in time, I had more money than common sense. And so I used the money and got a major uh, pro photo, you know, high end flash setup. I was shooting with a, a Canon 1D, the original, and it was a beautiful thing. But I forgot about that for years. And then around 2013, a friend of mine wanted to do some instructional videos at that point, I had a Canon 5D Mark II, and I said, well, let's explore this, and we could do video. But what really got me going was that I was on a site one day, it was called Planet 5D at the time, and the owner of that website engaged me in conversation, and I was retired at this point. I was hanging out. He asked me to write a guest article, which I did. And then he asked me if I wanted to write for him. So for a year and a half, I was basically getting paid to eat chocolate. <laughs> you know, I was writing all the time yeah. about photography. And then I went out on my own and YouTube really became something interesting to me. And then in 2017, I met my mother and my two sisters in New York City for the tax march. And I was reviewing another camera at that point. And I fell hard in love with photography. I fell hard in love with videography. I actually became a documentary filmmaker doing a 24, five, six webisode series on a hazardous liquids pipeline being put through the Southern tier of Pennsylvania. My older daughter uh, was the one who helped me understand how important hyperlocal news was that I didn't need to worry about marching down in Washington or protesting. I just needed to look in my backyard, which I did. And it's just grown from, from there. That's kind of it. It's been driven by passion. And in the last year and a half, Claudia has become 
just an incredible partner in life and in the business. And it has really taken off. Our workshops are extraordinary. I mean, they are gifts. And to be able to share our love for street photography and to meet such fascinating people who share that kind of passion, it's just kind of mind-blowing. So back to that old adage, if you love what you do, it's not work. That's kind of where I am. And by the way, by the way, I don't need nearly as much money as I thought I did to be happy, (laughs) which is a good thing because I will never make that kind of money again. Oh, yeah. Well, I've never made that kind of money again, ever. So I don't have to look back. And <laughs> Hey, man, it's a very mixed bag, but I don't regret it. I don't regret it, but it's not necessary. It's not necessary. And how did you guys meet? The internet. Oh, my God. We met on the internet. I mean, it's just classic stuff. I was on every dating site out there. And uh, not because I wanted to meet anybody. I just wanted to get out of the house. So I annoyed a bunch of different people in the early days that I was on this website, on these different websites. So here's the story. I think you'll appreciate this. So I'm writing these profiles. You may not know what this is like, but this was before Tinder and you just swiped. And I'm also a writer. So I just wrote exactly how I felt. So there was this one website, dating website, where my profile says, I don't love to laugh. You can't dress me up or dress me down. I get really cranky in traffic. I hate roller coasters. I have no interest in that kind of thing. And unbeknownst to me, there was a 10-year-old, two towns over, going over the dating site with his mom. And at 10 years old, you're pretty literal, right? Yeah. And he says, mom, this guy doesn't like roller coasters either. You should go out with him. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and that woman turned out to be Claudia. That's it. We we were together for 11 years before we decided to get married. And then when we did decide to get married, we were sufficiently old enough and poor enough that we were not going to bother with a wedding ceremony or wedding reception. In fact, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you can marry yourselves. It's called a unifying marriage or something like that. And all you need are witnesses. So we walked over to our Starbucks where we knew everybody there and we asked them to witness our signatures and we had a latte. I think we shared one. That was it. And uh, we've been, we've been married since then. What about you, man? I'm talking all about me, but what about you? Talking about his fair play. Yeah, I was working at Nikon, which was the first job after college, down in the old offices down in Torrance. And my wife worked down in uh, the parts department. And uh, yeah, I talked to her, thought she was cute. But I had learned from experience that you never date somebody who you work with. And Unless so, it's worth it. Yeah, I, my previous experience had been so bad, I was just like, hard set. It's not going to happen. But okay. she had been there sort of temporary because she really wanted a job at Epson. So she got the job at Epson, and then the Ah. day she she was leaving, I said, oh, we should go out and get together. I thought that I was going to get back into the dating pool because I hadn't dated or gone out with anyone in about two years. And six months later, I asked her to marry me, and we've been married 26, going on 27 years. Fantastic. Do you guys have kids? No, just a series of dogs. <laughs> that was ooh like that. <laughs> well, we stopped after two, and yeah, it was dogs from that point forward. 
Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been good. You know, just learning how to live with someone is a challenge, but it only took us about fifteen years to get it to get it to the point where like it's it's working well. Last ten years have been like the best. I think uh, you know. I always tell her that she's my my best friend, and I can honestly, when I say that, I say that sincerely to her. You know, so and she feels the same about me. And you know, it just gets That's to the it. point where you just That's realize, ain't hey, that per- there are things that my wife does that drive me crazy, and you go, and I go, that's never going to change, and I'm just going right. to be okay with it, you know. And then right. she's kind of learned the same thing about me. There are certain things that she can want me to, you know, turn off that switch, and it's like, no, baby, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I wish, I wish that your audience could see you right now because your head is going back and forth. No, 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 no. <laughs> But I, I I agree with you. Of course, that's it. It's it's interesting to me. Wife means less to me. The the label wife means mm. less to me than partner, best friend. Yeah, it's it's the the one person you want when you have to face the world with anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. But when you yeah. choose to work with your spouse, as much as you can love and respect and adore someone, working with someone is a completely different. It can be a very different beast. I've never really kind of worked with um, with my wife to the degree that you work with yours. So well, she makes me look so much better than I do in real life. How could I not? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, How so? you got to explain that to me. Well, I mean, if you, I've always said, and and I'm sure that you found this to be true as well. That even when it's in street photography, you can always see something about the relationship between the photographer and the subject. Mm-hmm. Always. And the way Claudia photographs me, it's clear that she loves me. I really don't know how else to put it. She, she literally makes me look better than I do in real life, which is hard. I think that's really hard. <laughs> but I, I think the more important thing is we, like you, understand each other, accept each other, more than accept each other. We love each other. And the things that are a pain in the butt in the overall scheme of things, they're just, they're just not big issues. Yeah. And when we occasionally get on each other's nerves, and I've learned this from Claudia, it lasts about 10 seconds. We are, she likes to say we're yin and yang. We are. Recently, when, when we first met, we used to call each other click and gurgle because my ankle would click and her stomach would gurgle. <laughs> now, <laughs> now... <laughs> <laughs> we, we've recently started calling each other earth, wind, and fire. She's earth. She's grounded. Mm-hmm. And I'm much more mercurial. I'm much more hot-tempered, although basically that temper almost never comes out with her. I mean, I can count on the fingers of one hand, I think. It's one. How many times I've actually gotten angry. But uh, so I'm the uh, wind and fire. And it, it manifests itself in, in how we work. She's not simply our camera operator and gimbal op when we are out on location. Not only is she our audio person, but she is a location scout. She will be walking down the street and she'll see an interesting venue. And all of a sudden I'm walking with other people and I turn around, she's gone. That's because she's gone into this uber cool place and gotten the business card because maybe we want to shoot there. Maybe we want to do something there. She is a coat director, co-producer. On the other hand, there are plenty of times where she'll just hand me the camera and say, set it for me, or (laughs) uh, I'm the one who does all the editing. Yeah. 
It's, it's about like that. But it, it's so gratifying the way she has stepped into uh, the role as a co-leader in our workshops because she just brings a profoundly different perspective. We, we have profoundly different upbringings. She was born and raised in Zurich, Switzerland. She was the it girl for location, styling, makeup in Europe for commercial shoots for years. Mm. And I was on Wall Street. I was in pharmaceutical market research. And we say to each other all the time, if we'd met each other when we were younger, we would have hated each other. <laughs> but again, life has a way of leavening things. And it's, it's fantastic. She is a wonderful, wonderful life partner, business partner. You know, when, when we each... In a, in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or, or not, if we each are the best versions of ourselves because our partners enable it, allow it, that's it, man. Yeah. You know, that's it. I know you get that. Mm -hmm. So how did your previous life prepare you for this one? <sighs> well, so I was extremely disciplined, extremely rigorous, extremely analytical. But I was also younger, so I have more energy then than I do now. But it actually, it's a great question because it was instrumental in me doing uh, one of the two latest videos, which you saw. I mean, I think this is the video that led you to call me, which was about uh, the corona pandemic, coronavirus pandemic from a photographer's perspective. Keep calm and, and carry on. And, and I used to write all the time. I mean, I've actually had screenplay option, but when you're in business and you're doing analysis and you're making presentations, you're, you're writing and you research and you have people who research for you. And so it made sense for me to think about this deeply. The art of writing is the art of thinking and the art of rewriting is the art of thinking more deeply. Yeah. As, as I said, again, it, for me, it's never been just about photography and, and the most amazing photographers of all time have incredible backstories because those backstories are what allow them to see it's what they choose to see what they choose to capture and then what they choose to cull from all of that and actually show to the rest of the world so all of those things just combined in a serendipitous way it was kind of like the pot was stewing for decades and then it all came together and this is this is what I should be doing. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting how you come off in in the YouTube videos that you do as a very unique voice. Not just because you have this amazing voice, but that well, you were from you. That is high praise indeed. Thank oh, you, man. I'm sure that people are going to have wet dreams just the fact that we're both talking together. <laughs> I can't tell you how many comments I get about ASMR or AMSR. I had to look it up. I had to look it up. Okay. Let's move what on. Is that? <laughs> oh, okay. It's go look it up. That's all I'll look it up. Yeah. Go look it up. Yeah. But what I like about it is that you are you, right? When I watch so much other YouTube content, it's people emulating other people. And there's a sort of a uniformity to it all that just gets boring and irritating. And what I like about, about you is that I feel your genuineness every time that you uh, upload a, a video. And especially considering how, how simple and straightforward so many of them are. And yet, I once I've hit that play button, uh, you got me for the entire duration. I'm not cutting out after a 
couple of minutes, like I will in some other videos. But putting yourself out there, that genuinely can be difficult. I know it's been difficult for me to kind of embrace that. And I'm doing it more and more. But I wonder, but for you, how easy was that for you to just put yourself out there the way that you do? Easy. And, and part of it comes from the recognition that I don't really care if people don't like me. Because one of the things that's fantastic about social media is that while it's filled with trolls, it's also what allows you to find your tribe. Right. Yeah. I didn't. I'm not the first one to come up with that. What's the point of trying to be anything other than who you are? I mean, the only thing that's unique about any of us is that we have a totality of experience, which is not the same as anybody else. I basically am sharing what I learn. That's, that's how I think about it. I learned something and I'm very excited to, to share it. And, and it's wonderful to have passions. So that's, that's never been hard. Uh, at the beginning, the response that was coming back from so many people was amazing. And then at some point you reach a certain size. I'm sure you've had the experience as well, where, where you'll have some trolls come out. But I, we, we have an exceptional audience. I mean, my, I'm not everyone's cup of tea and, and my approach to life is not everyone's cup of tea. And I have 65,000 subscribers on YouTube rather than 650,000. And I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. That's true of anybody. I don't care how brilliant you are. I mean, Mozart had people who didn't like him. I don't happen to know who they were, but do you remember Goldfinger? The, yeah. One of the earliest James Bond movies. Do you remember, this was 1964, and Bond turns to the girl who was going to be dying any minute now, painted in gold, yeah. and he makes some crack about the Beatles and noise. Hey, you don't like the Beatles? Okay. But, so if, if not everybody likes me, who am I to complain about that? Why, why am I going to try to please everybody? That's, that's just chasing ghosts. Don't you think? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. That's a perilous thing. That's why I don't read reviews. I, I made the mistake with my first book, and it, my first book got more favorable reviews than not, but I gravitated to the negative ones. And I was just of like, course. you know something? This, this doesn't help me. I wrote, so sub, subsequently, anything that I create, I just do the best that I can. And once it's put to bed, whether the show gets uploaded to the internet or whether the book goes to the publisher, I'm just moving on to the next thing. Good for you. What else are you going to do? Yeah, yeah, because otherwise I'll just get caught up into that thing. And it's like, you know, and when I did read some of the reviews, they had, they had nothing to do with what I'd actually created. It was some other, you know, had something to do with something else that had nothing to do with what I'd made. I got you. In the early days, I if there, if there were a negative comment, I would, at first it was, oh my God, oh my God. Not that I'm a religious guy, but still, oh my God. And then I would look up that person and invariably, invariably, it was some guy who was probably living in his mom's basement. He had no videos, no subscribers, no portfolio. And so why pay attention? I mean, my basic view is that on social media platforms, I'm opening my virtual home to anyone who wants to walk through the door. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when we go onto social media, that's really what we're doing. And everyone is welcome. But if the first thing you do when you walk into my home is take a crap on the floor 
you're gone. I mean, you're gone. The whole conversation is there to have. You're gone. And you don't matter to me at all. You just took a crap on my life floor. So you've been teaching uh, these street photography workshops in New York. Um, you put, what have you done? Three or two or three? Or is it so we did two last year and they were, it was just mind blowing. We decided to do three this year. We were sold out in a matter of weeks uh, for March, June and October. And we had people coming in as we had last year from all over the world. Mm-hmm. So 2019 was a, a, a set of proofs really and 2020 we just got so excited we put i mean going back to the business world or going back to the fact that i was a teaching fellow as an undergraduate and a graduate student i put together a, a syllabus and and it was all about sharing all of these things and sharing a passion for new york city and and my objective was not to spend very much time talking about technique i mean decisive moment henri cartier brisson right? He actually tells you everything you need to know in my book about what street photography is all about in a matter of a dozen or two dozen pages. I mean, that's kind of it. And then it's just go out and shoot and, and figure it out from there. But then the coronavirus pandemic hit. And up until March 11th, which happened to be my older daughter's birthday, we were full steam ahead on March And then I got email from one of our uh, registrants who was flying in from Singapore. We had, we had registrants for March from Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, Germany, Canada, you know, all over the United States. And he said, I just want to let you know, I've been sheltering in place. I've been working from home for five weeks. My company put that contingency plan into place. I'm still coming. And then a couple of days later, it was, uh, they've told me that uh, they've told us that we should not fly to the United States. And as that's unfolding, I'm watching everything else like everyone else. Yeah. And I'm already thinking about the, the 1908 uh, pandemic. And I'm thinking that, that some of uh, our attendees are over 60 and it's clear that that's mm-hmm. a problem. I mean, it was gut-wrenching. It was gut-wrenching to postpone because I wanted to do it. Claudia wanted to do it. It is an emotional highlight of our year and we knew that everybody wanted to come but we had to do it we were just so humbled that everyone responded with you doing the right thing and and half of them figured out how to go into future sessions that we've got so it's yeah it's a fantastic thing because we're it's about the experience of shooting in what I think is the most photogenic city on earth. And it just happens to be where I was born. Not that I'm biased or anything. I'm sure LA <laughs> is awesome. I'd love to come out there someday and shoot with you. But uh, yeah, that's, that's where we are. How are you structuring your days now that you're at home? Cause that's for me, I, I had like two days where I basically led an unstructured life here. And I was going bug crazy. Really? Two days. After just two days, I need structure. So ah, it's just like I need, I need to have, okay, get up, do my meditation, walk the dog, read the paper, check my email, clean the off, whatever it is. I just, sure. I just need that. If it's just like sitting there, just watching the TV for hours, 
that just doesn't work for me because at the end of the day, oh, I no. feel like, Ugh. so, but for, for you, how are you using well, this first, time? First, first, I just want to, I just want to reinforce something that you just said. We don't have cable TV. We have gigabit ethernet speeds mm-hmm. and we have Apple TV and we have our favorite political pundits on, on YouTube, but we do not watch network TV and we don't watch cable TV because every time that we try it, it feels like crap is coming through our eyeballs mm-hmm. into our brains. It, it literally feels like that. So, so our structure is, for me personally, it's almost no different than it already was, which is, okay, you asked, I'll, I'll share this with you. I'm the one who gets up every morning first. Doesn't matter what time Claudia gets up because she has a full-time job as well as all of this. Mm-hmm. But I wake up first and I make breakfast and there is a Zen. I now understand English tea. I understand Japanese tea ceremonies. I, I understand the value of ritual. And I understand the value of ritual at a moment in time when everything else is out of control. So there is tremendous value. So I go and I make the coffee and I measure down to tenth of an ounce when I'm pouring the, the coffee. Wow. And I always foam non-fat skim milk because non-fat skim milk foams better than other kinds of milk. And I make the coffee. And I make breakfast and I make almost the exact same thing every day for years. And I make this for both of us. Greek yogurt, six ounces, a sliced banana. I do it in half, a, a shredded apple. There is a Zen to this. It's muscle memory. I'm fascinated that the human body with time can figure out the weight of walnut pieces to within a tenth of an ounce. And then I add sliced almonds on hers, whole raw almonds on mine, and then I bring it out to the couch. And Claudia is usually up by this time, but sometimes she's not. So I wake her up very gently and I say, breakfast is served. Meet you in down couch, which is uh, a play on words because we, we do yoga together. And the phrase is, we'll meet you in down dog. So now it's down couch. We prop ourselves up on either side of the couch. We're looking at each other and we're having breakfast and coffee on the couch every single morning. And this is when we synchronize. This is when we talk about what we saw last night or what's happened first thing in the morning. And I'm pretty much of a chirpy bird in the morning. And so with the first 10 or 15 minutes, (laughs) she needs to kind of achieve critical engine temperature. Uh, But then it's, we finish, we clean up, and then either she'll go into work, although right now she's not. She's she's made the decision, which I support 100%, that it's, it's simply too much of a risk. But then it's, for me, usually off to writing because I write every video that I do. And it's testing things that I'm writing about and I realize I've missed something. So I've got, this is the bat studio. Mm-hmm. And then half a flight of steps down, I mean the bat cave, half a flight of steps, steps down. It's a bat studio with a seamless white paper background and lights and all the rest where I have more room to move around. And it is either 
So it's either writing or it's B-roll or it's recording and then it's editing. And I will do that up until the time that she gets home. If there is a natural break point because the render is taking an enormous amount of time and the weather is nice enough, I will take out our golden retriever and we'll go for walkies. These days, because Claudia is home, we make sure that we do an extra long walkie with the pooch. So it's two and a half miles. Mm -hmm. And we do that every day. But other than that, it's as it was. The only difference is that it's harder to talk about gear because it was only ever a passion and a means to understand the world around us, which is no small thing. But what we're going through now, of course, there are much bigger fish to fry. Yeah. I like the, um, the announcement that you made about those people uh, for your contest for home pictures. Oh, yeah. I think it's just wonderful. I've been documenting um, my mother-in-law living with us. She's been living with us since August. She suffers from uh, or is living with early onset um, Alzheimer's. I am so sorry to hear that. But it's it's been a blessing, you know, and we don't have to worry about it because she was living alone uh, before. And it's just provided a wonderful time for my wife and her mother to to spend together. I've been sort of documenting it since she moved in. It's provided me some of the most intimate, personal images that I've ever created. I and, would love to see some of them. And, yeah, and, I'm not, and, I'm, and I'm not saying to you, oh, enter the competition, because that, that's not, I mean, one of the things that I say is, yes, it's a competition, but actually what our ambition is, is greater than that. We want it to be a contribution. And, yeah. and knowing you for an hour and seven minutes now, and, and hearing you speak, I, I think you have a very specific contribution to make in those images. So... Yeah, I'll share them with you. I was going to send, um, uh, I was editing them down and putting something together to send to a friend of mine because I was curious to hear um, his feedback. But I'll send you what I'm putting together from him and I welcome hear any thoughts on it from you. I but, would love to do that. Thank you. But I thought that that was just a wonderful suggestion for people to find a creative outlet during these times. To, well, thanks. Because I saw an image, I follow, I follow uh, the Gordon Parks um, institution on Twitter. Oh, founded the Gordon Parks Foundation. And Gordon Parks, during the latter years of his life, wasn't able to get out as much as he had in the past. Mm -hmm. And what he started to do mm -hmm. is he had a glass table with two levels. And what he did is he would paint these canvases. I think it was watercolors. And he would put them on the lower deck and then he would take these found objects and he would put them on the top deck and he would photograph it down on them. And if you, if you look at the Instagram feed today, which is March 24th, people are listening to this later, you'll see a picture of him at his window of his apartment, which was just across the street, the United Nations building. Well, he isn't photographing this this setup. He is not photographing that setup, but he was photographing something similar during that time. And he put out a series of books with these images that he created alongside his poetry. And I oh. think I have, I think I have three copies of those books on my on my shelf. 
and I and I think they're going to. I think the Instagram feed on Gordon Parks is, is intending to showcase that work in some way or another. At least they that they mentioned that. And it was I'm just looking at it right now. Yeah, it was a great reminder that here was a man, an amazingly talented photographer, who didn't let his own uh, limited physicality prevent him from being creative. And so when I saw that you were doing something, suggesting the same for other people, I thought it was marvelous. Well, he didn't let anything get in the way of him becoming who he was. Although the flip side, of course, is what he went through is what made him who yeah. he was. But his, his story is incredible. The things that he was doing at 15 years old, you know, out of the house at 11 oh, years old, yeah. and then becoming a filmmaker later on. And, and a composer. And, and composer. And, and that photograph that he took, I mean, it was posed, but of the guy popping up from the, uh, uh, the manhole cover. Mm-hmm. Incredible. The guy was incredible. But... I, I actually wasn't thinking of Gordon Parks when I was doing this. I was just thinking there have to be what we're going through may end up being one of the worst things of all time. I mean, when the Federal Reserve president of what is it? Uh, I forget what city it is, but but said that uh, we could have a 30 percent unemployment rate that mm-hmm. exceeds the unemployment rate of the Great Depression by five percentage points. Right. And and I just thought, but we have to get through this. And and there there has there has been so much worse. And if it wasn't economic, it was it was war. And we can get through this, but we need people to have something to focus on. We we need to offer something that is creative. I mean, my my sense is that art is more important now, today, mm-hmm. than Absolutely. ever. And ever. And what a, a wonderful position to be in where I could make a couple of phone calls. And, and get, you know, Adorama to be a sponsor of this so that there is really something there to incent people. Although being a former psychology major, I was a little bit concerned about undermining intrinsic motivation by extrinsic reward. That was my undergraduate student thesis. But you know what? It's just great. I mean, the response has been terrific. And as I said, that gets to be our little ding in the universe right yeah. Steve mm-hmm. jobs yeah well my last question that i ask each guest is i ask them to recommend a photographer and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so who that one photographer be and why so it's like asking them asking me my favorite movie i mean it's instant you know that's casablanca and i wasn't even alive when it was made but when it comes to photography, it's Cartier-Bresson. And you, you can argue, and I'm sure many people will, that that's a cliche, that's hackneyed. It's not because I don't know other photographers, because I do. It doesn't mean that I don't love what Richard Avedon did or what Irving Penn did or what Munkowski did because he was the only photographer who ever inspired Cartier-Bresson. But the reason why Cartier-Bresson for me is, is the photographer is not only what he shot, but his particular life. Mm. And I think it's so important that people actually understand who the people are who are taking the pictures. You know, that this whole three blind men and an elephant thing, people ask me all the time, what is that? <laughs> Other than being a really long name, and maybe you know, because you meditate, that it's actually a, a parable, an Indian parable, although there's an analog in Chinese culture as well which ultimately is all about 
intellectual humility and recognizing that one man's subjective truth might not be another's and neither might be the actual truth. And there are all kinds of things that can come from that. But Cartier-Bresson was born into one of the 200 wealthiest families in France. And they were that wealthy because they owned mills at a point in time when that was the new technology. So here's a, a guy who was the beneficiary of tremendous wealth and yet saw that wealth close up enough to understand what the issues were. And that's why he dallied in surrealism. Surrealism being an art movement created to basically say to the establishment who got them into World War I, we reject everything about you. We reject everything about you. Hmm. And then in the 20s, he flirted very heavily with communism, not because communism is a good thing or it's a bad thing. It's just a label. But because back in that day, if you were aware enough of what was going on, you recognized the failings of capitalism and you were looking for something else, whether you like communism or not. And I'm not a proponent of communism, but it's important to understand that these things informed his eye. And then when he joined the French army in World War II and was captured, and it's like a, a, a like, uh, what is it, Hogan's Heroes, the TV comedy in the, in the 60s or 70s, it took him three times to escape. And when he did, he dug up his Leica and his roles of film. That informed what he did afterwards. And you can see in his work, it went from the serendipitous or the formalism of, of geometry to the surreal and then to photojournalism. And he became an incredibly powerful voice for understanding what was happening. And when he co-founded Magnum and where they got to keep rights to their work, they insisted upon it. And he would take an assignment like going to China. He'd go for three years. He'd go for three years because he wanted to understand what it was that he was seeing. So long-winded way of saying that if there's only one photographer to study, to really study, not just the images, but the life and the connection between that life and those images and those times and our times today, Henri Cartier-Bresson is it. For me, yeah. your mileage may vary, and that's fine. <laughs> well, thank you for that, and thank you for your time, man. It was great. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thanks to Hugh for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting hughbrownstone.photography and his YouTube channel, Three Blind Men and an Elephant, at 3bmep.com. That's numeral three, beta mike, echo, papa, dot com. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. And along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a great response, and I'm back with a follow-up where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8, and your purchase is another way to support the show. Purchase that in any of my previously published ebooks 
by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to William Ferguson and Sam Lintaro for their recent contributions. We really appreciate it. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.